In short, the agreement doesn't eliminate coal jobs. It just transfers those jobs out of America and the United States and ships them to foreign countries. This agreement is less about the climate and more about other countries gaining a financial advantage over the United States. The rest of the world applauded when we signed the Paris Agreement. They went wild. They were so happy. For the simple reason that it put our country, the United States of America, which we all love, at a very, very big economic disadvantage. That was President Trump announcing that he's pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Well, it's been about six months since the inauguration of President Trump. And at UCS, we've gone from speculating about the worst abuses of science under his administration to confronting them head on. One of the folks at the forefront of our fight to protect the role of science in our democracy is UCS President Ken Kimmel. Ken's been hitting back through media interviews, meetings with policymakers, and on-the-ground activism. Ken was our very first guest on the Got Science podcast back in February, and we've invited him back to chat with us about where we are now with the Trump administration. Coming up in our talk, the symbolic significance and real-world consequences to the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, the economic success of California's clean energy policies, the future of anti-science bills and budgets in Congress, and what we have to do to stay in the fight for the long haul. And stick around after the interview for a 4th of July message from Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the UCS Center for Science and Democracy. Ken, welcome back. Pleasure to be here with you, Colleen. So it's the 4th of July, perfect time to do a check-in on the Trump administration. In recent months, I've heard you use the phrase wrecking ball to describe the Trump administration. Where's it swinging now and what's it landing on? Well, I do think the wrecking ball sort of captures what we have. This is a president who ran on a campaign as a developer that he was going to build things. But mostly what I see is this wrecking ball swinging and smashing things that we've spent many years trying to build. The most obvious one is how it's taken a wrecking ball to the norms and expectations that we have about how a president's supposed to behave. Um, I don't probably need to say more about that. I think everyone will understand that. But that's a significant blow to a, a set of rules governing presidential behavior that have now been blown to bits. I would say that the wrecking ball is swinging, but has not yet landed on the social safety net. I think that uh, we will have to watch over the next few weeks and find out what happens on the health care bill. I'm hopeful that that blow will not land, but it's still in play and it could land, and that would be uh, a real disaster for our most vulnerable citizens. I certainly think that when the president decided to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement, that was taking a wrecking ball to the whole idea of international cooperation on all issues, chief among them is climate change, but not only climate change. And finally, from the day he set foot in office, he has been taking a wrecking ball at science and scientists and science-based policies. And of course, our role at the Union of Concerned Scientists is to make sure that that wrecking ball against science never lands. 
So we open the segment with actually with a snippet of President Trump's speech pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, that particular part of the speech really got under your skin. What made you so mad? Colleen, I was infuriated by the whole speech. It was like an avalanche of lies. But the one that really stuck in my call was the one where he said that everyone was so happy when we signed the Paris Agreement because they knew that they were going to be able to take advantage of us economically. Now, the reason that made me so mad, Colleen, I was there. I was in Paris when this agreement got approved, and people were incredibly happy about it. But it had nothing to do with taking advantage of the United States. People were happy because after decades of false starts, finally, the whole world gets together and pledges to address the most pressing challenge of our times. That's what people were happy about. And boy, did I hate to see that so utterly misrepresented by the president. So uh, another thing, he he spoke at length about all the other countries benefiting from the agreement and focused on India and China being able to build more coal plants while the U.S. is closing plants. This would lead to massive jobs lost, I believe he said. Is there any truth in that statement? See, the funny thing about these things is not only is there no truth to it, the truth is actually the opposite of what he said. And it's hard to get one's arms around that, but that is the fact. The fact of the matter is that the United States is uniquely suited to take advantage of this transition to clean energy. We've got wind resources. We've got solar resources. We have incredible technology and innovation and entrepreneurs and a a capital market that values fresh, bright ideas. Um, As the governor that I used to work for said, if we get clean energy right, the world will be our customer. I believe that's true for the entire United States. And Mr. Trump is completely missing the economic opportunity that clean energy presents for this country. So right after his announcement, European countries stepped up and reaffirmed their commitment. China announced it was staying in, India as well. There's also been a groundswell of grassroots support in the U.S., Can we sustain this momentum and make the progress that we need to make? We have to. Failure is not an option here. I am very heartened that other countries have uh, responded to this pullout by saying, Mr. Trump can do whatever he wants. We are in this agreement. We're going to meet our pledges. And I am super heartened by all the mayors and governors and university presidents and big business leaders who are saying the same thing. It is absolutely true that the federal government does have some important tools in the toolbox to deal with climate change, but so do businesses, so do cities, so do states. And the fact that a movement is growing as a backlash to Mr. Trump to raise the ambition at the state and the local uh, level is really heartening and I think will put a tailwind in all of our efforts at UCS over the next number of years to make progress on the ground, whether we have Mr. Trump on our side or not. You mentioned the states, and California is an important piece of the puzzle. California is the sixth largest economy, and Governor Jerry Brown is leading the charge. What role do you see California playing? Well, California plays an extremely important role. As you noted, it's a very robust economy. And so if it can have this vibrant economy while dealing with climate change, of course, it sets a really good example for everyone else. Also, California is pioneering a lot of different policies and trying them out, and all of us can learn from their successes and their failures. So so that's really important. But I do want to emphasize 
to me, what's important about this story isn't just that the Californias and the New Yorks and the Massachusetts of the world are getting into the clean energy game. It's also the South Dakotas and the Wyomings and states that you wouldn't expect. They are really showing leadership on clean energy. They're building uh, wind farms and solar energy. They're putting people to work. So this story about state leadership and getting things done on the ground is really a national story. It's not just about California, although I have to say California helps lead the way. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. You're listening to the Got Science podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at ucsusa.org podcast. You can also find us on iTunes. If you'd like to check out Ken's blog posts, go to blog.ucsusa.org. Now back to our interview. Stepping away from specifically the Paris Climate Agreement, what are the biggest challenges right now with the Trump administration? Well, I think from my viewpoint, the way I look at it is we need to make sure that when this administration is done, which it will be at some point, they are not able to leave behind a scorched earth so that the successor who comes in will be able to reverse the damage that's been done pretty quickly and make progress going forward. So there's a number of things that are possibilities of a scorched earth that we need to fight. One of them are these uh, horrific anti-science bills in Congress. They have great names like the BEST Act or the HONEST Act. I'm sure there's a Science and Apple Pie Act. You name it, they got it. But the bills do exactly the opposite of what they say. What they're really all about is making it harder for governmental scientists and governmental agencies to protect the public health and safety. That's really what they're about. We've got to make sure that those bills don't pass because if they do, uh, even if a new president comes in, he or she will have their hands tied behind their back in terms of doing the type of protections of our health and safety that we're all counting on. So that's one thing. A second thing is we cannot allow the Trump budget to pass or anything like it to pass. It has deep and devastating cuts to our scientific capabilities that will haunt us for years. So we've, we've got to stop that. I have a good feeling about that one, by the way. I think we're going to make progress on that. The third is we have to make sure that Congress does not tamper with our environmental laws like the Clean Air Act. So no taking away EPA's power to deal with greenhouse gases and no taking away the power of states if they want to, to do more than the federal government is doing. So that that's a key one. And finally, we are seeing more and more evidence now of the government really suppressing science Data sets are now starting to mysteriously uh, disappear from websites. There's this new call for this red team, blue team thing on climate change, which is they're going to take the conventional climate change science and then bring people into the government to attack it. That just sounds to me like having climate science denial being sponsored by the U.S. government. So these are profound threats. Um, And UCS and many other groups are fighting these threats uh, on all fronts. And our goal, frankly, we know we're not going to make a lot of progress in the next four years. Our goal is to make sure that there is no lasting damage. So you said you had a good feeling um, about this. And 
Talk a little bit more about that. What can the average person do? Yeah, well, here's what's happening. The scientific community and many other communities are mobilizing against this budget like I've never seen before. It's unbelievable what's happening at these town hall meetings across the country. People who have never been involved in politics, including a lot of scientists, are speaking up in very, very personal terms and getting in the faces of their elected representatives and making sure that they're being heard. And I believe that Congress is hearing that. From my own rounds on Capitol Hill, my sense is is that most senators and congressmen don't consider the Trump budget to be a reasonable starting point for conversation. And they don't want to make these dramatic cuts in our ability to do good science and protect the American public. So I think we're going to win that fight but I'm not taking it for granted. And in terms of what the average person can do, you know, we live in this electronic age right now. The most important thing people can do is get away from their emails and their computers and meet face to face with their congressmen, call their offices. They track these things, write letters and op-eds, meet with the district staff. And if you live in some blue state where you think your representative already gets it, then share information with your cousin in a red state or in a purple state and provide uh, good information that that person can use or encourage a company that you work for that has clout to, to be a good spokesman. So there's a lot of things that people can do wherever they live. And again, one of the big silver linings I see in what's going on is the way the various threats have mobilized people to act. So how do you think our system of government is holding up overall? Well, you know, it's July 4th, and it's a good day, even with all some of the doom and gloom, it's a good day to take note of how actually how well our institutions are holding up. We still have a free press that has not hesitated to call out the uh, misstatements and falsehoods that are coming out of the administration, uh, despite them being branded enemies of the people. We have the court system that has taken a very skeptical look at things like the Muslim ban and not caved into the sort of the bluster and swagger about it, but have looked at the evidence and found that it didn't support the idea of banning people from all these different countries. We've seen both parties step up to the plate and condemn things that are going on. And we're seeing people take advantage of the most important thing about the United States, the First Amendment, their First Amendment rights to speak up and be heard. And I think our our country is being tested in profound ways right now. But many of the institutions that make us a great country are holding up rather well. Do you think we can get back to a less polarized place? Colleen, I think we have to get back to a less polarized place. I mean, one example is this healthcare debate that's going on. The idea that uh, we would pass a health care bill that affects one-sixth of the economy on a 50-50 tie with the vice president breaking the tie, that's crazy. That's crazy. The American people don't like it. They want bipartisan progress. Unfortunately, there's a lot of complicated reasons why we've gotten to this place. But if this health care bill doesn't succeed, I really hope that people will try to learn their lessons. Get 10 Democrats, get 10 Republicans, the people who know the most about this, put them in a room and tell them they've got to come up with a solution that works for everybody. We, we've got to get back to doing that because we have such big problems out there and this political gamesmanship 
means that we never really make any lasting progress. Exactly. So I worry that people are going to start to burn out. We've gone to marches. I've gone to several. You have. It's hard to sustain this level of activity and engagement when we all have our lives to live. Do you think we'll be able to sustain this to get to the other side? Well, Colleen, I know that you and I will be able to sustain it, and I think a lot of our listeners will be able to sustain it too. But you're right, it's a real challenge. This is a marathon, not a sprint. I think one thing we can try to do is stay focused on particular things that we care the most about, not try to you know, go after every single outrage, but stay focused on the ones that matter to us the most because of who we are. And I think that's a way of sort of harnessing and and prudently stewarding the energy we have for this. Because you're right, uh, we, we can't go to a march every weekend. There's limits on what we can do. We all have lives and families and other responsibilities. But if we let down our guard, if we get tired, if we get distracted, we're letting that wrecking ball land a lot more. And so we've got to keep that image and that and that threat in mind. We just have to keep at it. Have to keep at it. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you. And now a word from Dr. Andrew Rosenberg on the 4th of July. In honor of the 4th of July, I want to tell you a great American story. And as I heard it, I reflected on my own family's history, as you may. It's a story about the son of a Russian Jewish immigrant, just like my grandparents. This immigrant was a first generation American garment worker who grew up poor in New York City, like my grandfather, though my grandfather first earned his living hand rolling cigars. Eventually, our garment worker was responsible for bringing together millions of Americans to change the world in a way we still feel today. It could also be a story of how it almost didn't happen. This young immigrant was extremely gifted academically. He studied at a public high school in New York City, was accepted to City College of New York at the age of 15. When he decided to study medicine, he had to scramble to find a school with no quotas for Jewish students. The US hadn't quite come around on non-discrimination in those days, and for some groups, we still haven't. In fact, my two great uncles had the same problem when they tried to go to school back in the 30s and 40s. But he found a graduate school that would accept him, earned his MD, and decided to conduct medical research instead of practicing medicine. And then his career coincided with an epidemic that united all Americans in a desperate hope for a cure. Polio was an indiscriminate killer. The disease cut across class, race, gender, age, religion, and indeed across the world. It killed children, and it seemed unstoppable. Doctors and scientists just didn't know enough about polio, how it was transmitted, why it was striking in waves, until millions of Americans answered the call to fund scientific research into the disease. The power of the media, through radio commercials asking for funding and telling the story of polio, inspired 100 million Americans to contribute their dimes to medical research for polio. Over the span of about seven years, Dr. Jonas Salk leaned on this financial support the research of others, and the workers in his lab to perfect his killed virus polio vaccine. Selflessly, more than a million American families volunteered their children for trials once he was ready to test it. And just as selflessly, once the vaccine was proven to work, Dr. Salk refused to patent it so that everyone could have access. You know how this story ends because you know that polio has been nearly eradicated 
for most of the world. Maybe you never thought of it as an American story, but it is, because if just one element were missing, it would have never happened at all. If immigrants and their children were barred from our country because of where they came from or their religion, or if immigrants were denied access to American schools, or our research enterprise valued homogeneity over ingenuity, or if Americans didn't believe in funding scientific research, or if we didn't believe in equal access to life-saving protections, or if we didn't care about everyone's children, not just our own, if we didn't believe in the power of science to help us find out more about our world, if we couldn't put our differences aside to unite against an overwhelming and obvious problem, we wouldn't have solved the problem of polio and we won't solve the problems that confront us now. I'm proud of my immigrant family history and to live in the same United States that gave Jonas Salk the opportunity to work in tandem with millions to cure polio and change the world forever. I know we're capable of solving hard problems together. Here's to the innovation and collaborative spirit of science in America this 4th of July. E pluribus unum. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Andrew Rosenberg and UCS President Ken Kimmel. Music and editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. See you next time.